Good morning. I am so encouraged to see you this morning in church. How many of you remember uh, November of 2020? Do you, do you remember being alive in November of 2020? It was in November of 2020, actually November the 15th, 2020, that I asked you as a church for the first time to open your Bible to the first chapter of Isaiah. Here we are on March the 7th. 2021, aren't you glad we survived 2020? And I'm asking you to open your Bible to the last two chapters of Isaiah. We've been studying this book because it's the most relevant book for people in America. This was a message from God through the prophet Isaiah to a sinful nation. They were watching their moral uh, climate decline and decay. Their enemies were marching in. They were politically divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Their enemies had invaded the capital, try, attempting to overthrow the government. They were dragging their children off into a godless land where they were tempted to be consumed into a godless culture. And so this is a message for us today. Um, if you ever find yourself living in a nation like that, hypothetically, uh, you might want to pay attention to what God is saying to us through this book. It reminds us that we're not the first people to watch our culture crumble. It reminds us that judgment is very real. God takes sin very seriously. But it also reminds us of the faithfulness of God. That in the midst of judgment, God brings hope. And so it reminds us that God always has a remnant people that he brings through judgment. So the message for us is don't lose hope. No matter how dark the culture is, no matter how threatening the enemies are, the people of God have a promised future. We have a hope of heaven. So here's the big idea of the message this morning. For God's people, the fear of judgment has been replaced by the hope of heaven. The last six chapters of the book of Isaiah are all about a promised future for the people of God, which we know as heaven. How many of you are on your way to heaven? Raise your hands. Raise your hand. Turn to your neighbor and say, are you going to heaven? Are you going to heaven? I'm sure that most of you, the majority of people in church this morning would say, well, yeah, I'm going to heaven, or at least you would say, I hope I'm going to heaven. Did you know that surveys have revealed that for every one person who believes they're going to hell, 120 people believe they're going to heaven. Hey, here's the news this morning. Not everybody that thinks they're going to heaven is going to heaven. Some people have a false hope of heaven. If I were to ask you, if you died right now, do you know without a shadow of a doubt you would be in heaven? What would you say? I'm like, well, I kind of, it was kind of a rough weekend and, uh, you know, I kind of live more like hell than I did in heaven. I'm not quite sure. And listen, I want you to know the Bible was written so that you could know you're going to heaven. That's what it says in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe so that you know you have eternal life. 
Now, there's two kinds of hope. We're going to talk a lot about hope this morning. There's two kinds of hope. There's a worldly hope and there's a biblical hope. Let's make the contrast. First of all, a worldly hope is wishful thinking of a worried mind. This is the kind of hope people in Michiana have about this time of year. They hope winter is over. I'm just here to announce, public service announcement, it's not. It's going to snow again, just get ready for it. But that's wishful thinking. we got a worried mind here. Maybe, maybe you're hoping you're going to get a job, or maybe you're hoping your sports team's going to win. That's wishful thinking of a worried mind. Now, all of us have been there. Few of us have been here. A biblical hope is this. It is a confident expectation of a promised future. This kind of hope has less to do with my faith and more to do with God's faithfulness to keep his promise. The whole book of Isaiah is written to a people that were promised they would inherit a land, they would be a great nation, they would bless God, and they would be a blessing to every other nation on the planet. At this point in redemptive history, that's not looking great. They are about to be overthrown. They are crumbling as a nation. They are threatened to be just completely annihilated. And Isaiah writes, there's reason for hope. We have a confident expectation in the promises of God for the things that he has promised for his remnant people. So I, got, I, want, I, want you, I want to know, are you going to heaven? Do you have this kind of hope of heaven? You are absolutely confident of the expectation of heaven because of the faithfulness of God to get you there. There's a tombstone in a cemetery near Fort Wayne, Indiana. This is what it reads on the outside of the tombstone. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be, so prepare for death and follow me. That's pretty good counsel. Um, We need to think about death. Every day on the news, we get a new report of how many people have died from the coronavirus. Hey, that's actually really healthy for us. We need to contemplate the fact that one day we're going to die. And some of you are like, I had coronavirus, I survived, I'm a survivor. Something else is coming for you. And they're probably not going to report it on the news. But listen, you are going to end up in a situation like this. One day somebody passed by this tombstone and they added a line to the phrase. To follow you, I am not content until I know which way you went. The Bible's basic truth is this. You're going to die And yet you are going to continue to live eternally in one of two places, heaven or hell. Do you know that if you died right now, you would spend eternity with Christ in heaven? What is this hope of heaven? Well, we're going to examine it here a little bit. First of all, the hope of heaven makes us glad. Back in scripture here, actually, we've wasted way too much time listening to me. We need to listen to God. Somebody should have already dragged me off the stage because I haven't read the Bible yet. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 1. God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, 
Here I am. Here I am. To a nation that was not called by my name. Verse 2. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. If you don't have a confident expectation of heaven, it's not because God's not ready. It's because you're not ready. God is holding out his hands. This service is an opportunity for you to come and be assured of heaven. God says, I'm here. Where are you? Come a little closer. So it makes us glad. I want you to skip down to verse 17, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad Underline that. Be glad. It's a command in Scripture for you to be glad. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and I will be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping. And the cry of distress. This is a description of heaven. This is one of the best descriptions in the Bible we have of heaven. Verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. And they shall not plant and another eat. That was their problem in the particular situation they were in. They built stuff and they planted stuff, but their enemies were coming in and taking away what they had built and what they had planted. Other people were reaping the benefit from their labors. Not so in heaven. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. People and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and he and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the servant's, serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. The hope of heaven makes us glad, if you have a confident assurance, that you're going to heaven. You see, Isaiah concludes this picture of judgment with a picture of the hope of heaven in the midst of the lowest point in redemptive history in their most sinful state God promises there's coming a day when God's people and God himself will experience nothing but gladness God wants us to think about heaven so it creates a hope of heaven on earth the cure for the most hopeless situation on earth is the confident expectation that I have a home waiting for me in heaven. And I'm commanded to be glad. The gladness of God is in lifting a helpless people out of despair and giving them the hope of heaven. The simple truth here, when I hope in heaven, 
There is gladness in heaven. Not only am I commanded to be glad, but it makes God glad when his people are glad in the hope that they have in heaven. Hey, if you don't hear anything else in this message, please understand this. Heaven is not essentially for you. Heaven is essentially for God to be glad. Heaven's not a place where God's going to make much of you. Heaven is a place where you are going to make much of God without any hindrance in your crumbling body and your really poor singing voice and, and your, your tiredness and all of that's going to be removed so you can make much of God in heaven so that you can make God glad. There's gladness in heaven when God's people have a gladness in themselves. And so we're, we're told here, interestingly, about a new heaven and a new earth. How often do you think about heaven? Now, the older you get, the more you think about heaven, right? Right? And, and hell, it's healthy to think about these things. You're going to live somewhere forever. The, the Bible speaks of heaven over 550 times, over 45 times even in the book of Isaiah. The Bible is essentially a story about Christ recreating a place for his people, a, a place that's resurrected, a place that's restored to what God intended originally for man to enjoy on earth. The first three chapters of the Bible give us the clearest picture of what heaven will be like. It's a place that's perfect. It's a place without death. It's a place without disease. It's a place where there's intimacy with God. Man and woman walked with God in the cool of the day, just completely together. And yet, because of sin, that world was broken. That world has fallen. Do you know what that means for you and me? You and I have never lived in the place God designed us to live in. It's broken, it's painful, it's hurtful. And yet, the last three chapters of the Bible tell us God's gonna restore it to its original perfect design and we're going to enjoy heaven on earth. That's what he says in verse 17. I create a new heavens and a new earth. Where do you get your ideas of heaven? Now, if, when you think of heaven, if you think of a cloudy existence, if you think of playing a harp next to a baby in a diaper with wings, you didn't get your picture of heaven from the Bible. Maybe you picked up a book at Walmart that told a story about somebody who died and went to heaven for a few minutes, but apparently he got sent right back, and you got your picture from that. Maybe you got it from the latest Disney movie, Soul, where it's like pastel colors and every, no, no shape and everything's weird and, and there's these disembodied souls and it doesn't look anything like earth. Well, we need to understand what the Bible has to say about heaven, and it may shock you, but the Bible's description of heaven uses images that we're familiar with on earth. Things like cities, things like buildings and streets and banquets and bodies. 
Now, I want you to take a deep dive with me here, and let's talk about the way that theologians describe heaven. First of all, we need to understand something about the present state, all right? This is where we live, where we live right now on a fallen earth, full of all of its pain and heartache and disease. It's, it's a mess down here. Anybody looking for an upgrade? Yeah, all right. So what we experience when a Christian dies, if you are abiding in Christ, if you've been made righteous in Christ, when a Christian dies, he goes to what theologians call the intermediate state. He dies and goes to heaven. It is accurate to say when a Christian dies, he goes to heaven. It's the intermediate state where Christ is now and where Christians live after they die in the present heaven. Now, I want to be really clear. We're calling this the intermediate state. We are not talking about purgatory. Turn to your neighbor and say, purgatory is not in the Bible. Purgatory was made up by Pope Gregory in the year 1593 because the church needed money. And if your grandma is stuck in purgatory, if you pray a few prayers and give a little more money, it accelerates the process where God graduates her into heaven. That doctrine is found nowhere in the Bible. So we get our picture of heaven from the Bible, and we call this the intermediate state. Now, this is a real heaven, and you should long for this real heaven. The New Testament writers describe this place for us. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, put it this way. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And I, it's so much gain, I'm hard-pressed between the two living and dying, present state, living with Christ, dying state, going to heaven. It's so good. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. How many think it's better to be with Christ in heaven than to abide with Christ on earth? It's true. We're looking for the upgrade. Now, he goes on and describes it in another place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He uses a, a metaphor of the present state being a tent and the, the intermediate state in heaven being a building from God. How many of you, your, your tent is a little leaky right now? A little wrinkled and not keeping a whole lot of stuff out, right? It's, it's kind of drafty and you're looking for an upgrade. We're going to upgrade from the tent to the building from God. It's our eternal home. That's how the Apostle Paul describes heaven. And then he goes on and says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. How many of you are looking to the day where you are far away from your body in its current state? Now be careful. You are going to live eternally in your glorified body. But this body is a fallen body. It's been cursed by sin. It wrinkles, it gets old, it gets diseased, and eventually it dies. Your glorified body is going to be at home with the Lord. Your resurrected body is going to be with the resurrected body of Jesus in all eternity in the new heavens 
and the new earth, which theologians call the final state. Present heaven is the intermediate state. The new heavens and the new earth form a new creation that we call the final state, which is where we will dwell eternally with God in the new heavens and on the new earth. It's going to look a lot like the fallen earth resurrected, recreated. It's going to be very familiar, only perfect, without any defect, and it's gonna be designed ultimately for God's glory and your good. Anybody wanna go? Like today, like I don't even need to hear the rest of the message. I'm just ready to go. Well, you gotta make sure you're going there. Randy Alcorn has written probably the best thing that you can ever read on heaven. It's a 700 page book, I read it this week. And uh, this, this book describes, and a lot of it's imaginative, but it's sanctified imagination, but he describes heaven this way. He describes the new heaven and the new earth coming together to form the new creation, which we just read about in Isaiah, and he imagines it like this. He says, imagine it, all of it, in its original condition. The happy dog with the wagging tail, not the snarling beast beaten and starved. The flowers unwilted, the grass undying, the blue sky without pollution. People smiling and joyful, not angry and depressed and empty. If you're not in a particularly beautiful place, Close your eyes, envision the most beautiful place you've ever seen. Everybody just close your eyes. Complete with palm trees, raging rivers, jagged mountains, waterfalls, or snow drifts. Now open your eyes. I have no idea why he included snow drifts in his description of heaven. To me, that sounds more like hell. So he obviously lives in a warm weather climate. He does not understand what we have to deal with up here. So you might just get that out of your imagination. Now close your eyes again. Think of friends or family members who love Jesus and are all with him now. Picture them with you, walking together in this place. All of you have powerful bodies, stronger than those of an Olympic athlete. You're laughing, playing, talking, and reminiscing. You reach up to a tree to pick an apple or an orange. You take a bite. It's so sweet that it's startling. You've never tasted anything so good. Now you see someone coming toward you. It's Jesus with a big smile on his face. You fall on your knees in worship. He pulls you up and embraces you. At last, you are with the person you were made for in the place you were made to be. That is the final state, the new heaven, the new earth, coming together to form the new creation. Question, what is it about heaven that will make us so glad. First of all, all the power of sin and death will be defeated. Again, look back in your Bible, verse 20. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old will be accursed. Let me just say here, this is, this is really hard language. It's poetic and it's apocalyptic and it's Isaiah's attempt to, to convey that you're never gonna have to fear someone being stolen from you through disease or death. 
It's not that there's going to be dying in heaven. He's just trying to tell you, you'll never have to feel the sting of death because there will be no disease. There'll be no sting of death. The point is not that we're going to live a long time before we die. The point is that we'll never feel that death has stolen, stolen life that belonged to us. In heaven, no one will experience the tragedy of dying young. In heaven, no parent will ever have to bury a child. In heaven, no one will ever weep over the unexpected death of a loved one. For those in Christ, the power of sin has been broken and we don't have to wait until heaven. The power of sin and the sting of death has been broken now. We can live victorious over the fear of death and the power of sin. Heaven makes us glad because all of our labors will be enjoyable. You say, wait, when I think about heaven, I don't think about labor. I think about rest. Well, look at verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build in another habit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. You see, not only has the power of death been destroyed, but the power to create and build has been restored. In the present world, work is wearisome and unfulfilling. Thought I might get an amen. You want to read that again? Uh, in the present world, work is wearisome and unfulfilling. In the present world, it's filled with people and things that can take away what you build, grow, and plant. But in heaven, no one will ever take from you that which you build and possess. The new heaven will be a place where you enjoy the work of your hands. No threat will ever demand from you what you built. There won't even be property tax in heaven. You just to get to enjoy what you own. And God's going to give us ownership over so many things. You know, whatever you do will bring ultimate satisfaction. The deepest desires of your heart to create stuff, you'll actually be able to create what you can dream up. Now, if you're honest, there's a sense of accomplishment that happens through work. I mean, you, you work and you, you, you accomplish something. There's a sense of satisfaction. A couple of weeks ago, I was back with my mom and she had, she had these two toilets. Both of them were leaking. It, and I had to go on YouTube. Why does the toilet leak? Flapper valve. How many of you ever placed a flapper valve? And yeah, you had your hands all over the toilet, right? Well, in heaven, the flapper valves don't leak. The toilets always work. I'm, I'm exaggerating here a little bit. But the idea is that we don't have to ever worry about stuff being broken even if it did break, you'd be able to fix it. You wouldn't have to call a repairman because our, the work of our hands would bring a sense of fulfillment and longing. Number three, all of our fears will be erased. Look at verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. In this world... Parents fear what will happen to us and those that we love, especially our children. In heaven, parents will never have to worry about anything, including the safety of their children. You'll never have to wonder if you've done enough as a parent or if something you didn't do messed up one of your kids. If your children are in Christ and by grace 
enter into heaven, you will be assured that God will keep them safe forever. And that sense of relief will be what you experience perfectly in heaven. Heaven makes us glad because all our fears will be erased. Heaven makes us glad because all of our intimacy with Jesus will be unhindered. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. How's your prayer life in this world? In the present world, God's presence can seem really distant. In the present world, there's so many things to distract us and discourage us from spending time with Jesus. How many of you wish you'd spent more time with Jesus this week and you got busy, you got distracted, you got discouraged, and it just didn't happen? That's what happens in this fallen world. But in heaven, God will be completely and immediately accessible. Now, most Christians, when they think about heaven, they think about just like a a marathon church service. And they're like, you know, I can only go for about 90 minutes. And sometimes it's only really about 45 before I check out in church. And listen, if that's your idea of what heaven's like, then you don't understand what kind of perfect resurrected body you're going to be in. You're going to have all the energy and all the imagination and all the creativity to point to Jesus. And again, remember, heaven is not a place where God makes much of you. It is a place where you are unhindered. All of your physical and mental limitations are gone so that you can express your love to Jesus. He's near. He's close. Number five, all of our natural enemies will be tamed. I love verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Wait, aren't aren't they enemies? And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. In in this world, the the lion eats the ox, not the straw. And this is the best part. Dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. You see, in this present world, it is filled with violence. And division because of sin. Everything in creation is at odds with one another. Animals attack. Storms destroy. Viruses infect. But in heaven, there will be perfect reconciliation between enemies. Predators and prey will become friends. Wolves and lambs, lions and calves will play nicely together. Even elephants and donkeys will get along. In heaven, there will be no division, no racism, no viruses, no vaccines, no mask mandates, no social distancing, no Republicans in heaven, no Democrats in heaven, no CNN, no Fox News, just good news. You're in heaven with Jesus, and that's all you're going to care about. And everybody there is going to agree with you, not because you're right, but because he's right. That's good, and this is the best part. It mentions a serpent. Throughout the Bible, you keep seeing this slimy, snaky creature appear. His first appearance was in Genesis chapter 2, chapter 3. And that serpent tempted Eve to eat the fruit in rebellion to God. Do you know what's promised here? Because that serpent tempted us to eat that which God did not allow, the serpent throughout eternity, is going to eat dust. That should encourage you. 
all of your enemies, including your eternal enemy of your soul, will be tamed. You'll no longer be tempted to sin. You will perfectly and lovingly obey Jesus all the time. So that's a pretty good description of what heaven is going to be like. Now let's ask the question, who is heaven going to be for? And that's the next point. The hope of heaven humbles us right here, right now. I want you to look in chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. In case you're wondering if you're, you know, like going to be ruling, you know, in opposition to Jesus. No, he's in complete control. He says, the earth is my footstool. Love that image. You ever kick your foot up on a footstool? It's like no problem for you. It's just like, yeah, that's just going to make me more comfortable. That's what the earth does. It says, what is this house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Verse 1 and verse 2 contrast two different types of people. First of all, he mentions people who believe you get to heaven because of what you do for God. God asked the question, like, who are you that's going to build for me? And that's the default thinking of the human mind. We think we have to build a resume of good works to impress God. Look, God, I went to church today. Look, God, I gave money today. Look, God, I didn't look at that. Um, I, I was nice to my cat today. Um, I, look at all the good stuff. I mean, and by the way, while you're looking at my good stuff, would you please notice how my husband acted today and my children in comparison to everybody I know, I look pretty good. Look at what I've done for you. That's what he says. Who are you that you would build for me? You don't get to heaven by doing something for God. You get to heaven humbled by what God has done for you. That's who he mentions in verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. And not, he doesn't just look. I mean, he looks and grabs and pulls you up and gives you something that's completely undeserved and unearned. He mentions the humble. The humble are people who have a posture that expresses the need for salvation. I can't save myself. My sin is so bad. I'm so far gone. The only way that I will ever make it to heaven is if God reaches down and pulls me in and gives me something I couldn't do for myself. Humble people lower themselves in the presence of God. And then he mentions the contrite. Contrite in spirit. It literally means the lame in spirit. The paralyzed in spirit. People that can't do anything for themselves. That's to, who, to whom he will look. To be contrite means that you have a sense of your brokenness. You have an awareness of how much damage your sin has caused in your relationship with God. Contrite people don't minimize their sin. They don't rationalize it. They don't blame it on anybody else. They own it. They accept it. And it brings them to a place where they understand, I can't do anything to earn heaven. 
It humbles me. And then it mentions people who tremble at God's word. Trembling happens in the fear of God after hearing the word of God. What word of God? That we are all sinners, desperately in need of a Savior. None of us can save ourselves. Do you tremble at that or do you just kind of yawn your way through that? God's word says, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner that without grace is going to spend eternity separated from Christ in hell. Does that make you tremble? Good. That's a gift from God because that's the person to whom God will look. And that view of heaven ought to humble me and keep me humble even now. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, you don't want to spend too much time thinking about heaven. I know some people that are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You ever heard somebody say that? Do you believe that somebody can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? You know what I believe? I don't think you're any earthly good until you're heavenly minded. That's what the, the Apostle Paul said in this verse, in Colossians 3. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. So these are people that have come into right relationship with Christ. They are on their way to heaven. Seek those things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. I can't think of too many people I've ever met that thought too much about things above. I can think of a lot of people that thought too much about things on earth. You're of no earthly good until you set your mind on what's above. And when you do, it'll bring you to a place of continual humility, continual confession of sin, continually trembling at God's word. Did you know that the name of our church has heaven in it. It's our middle name, Gospel City Church. Some of you are wondering, why'd you call yourself a city? You're in the middle of a cornfield. We know that. Our name is not about where we live. Our name is about how we live. We are gospel citizens of heaven. And as gospel citizens, we are sent to a city with the message of heaven. And we are longing for the better city that is to come. We've set our mind on things to come. Paul put it this way, they desire a better country. Anybody in favor of a better country? Anybody want to immigrate to a better country? There's one available. It's a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a gospel city. And we need to think more about it. And we need to live now more like citizens of heaven. When we're consciously aware of the pleasures awaiting for us in heaven, we can gracefully endure the pressures and the pains we experience now on earth. Without a proper view of heaven, we're crushed by the pressures of living on earth. But when we live in view of our eternal home, our lives on earth take on eternal significance. Our suffering is temporary and our eternal pleasure is waiting for us in heaven. Thirdly, the hope of heaven calls for a decision. 
I want you to look now at the last two verses of the book of Isaiah. Verse 22 says this. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. He's telling us that he's going to fulfill the promise that he's always going to have a remnant people and those remnant people are going to worship him forever. Verse 23, from new moon to new moon, another way of saying that is from month to month throughout eternity, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, from week to week throughout eternity, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Heaven's a place for the unhindered worship of God. Being saved from hell and saved for heaven, that's a wonderful secondary benefit of heaven. But the primary purpose of heaven is for the worship of the Lord, the one who saves, the one who creates, the one who redeems. Now, before I read the last verse in Isaiah, I want to warn you, it's scary. The last verse of the book of Isaiah is not about heaven. It's about heaven's awful alternative called hell. And Isaiah says this, for they, these people going to heaven, this remnant people, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Do you believe in hell? Jesus did. As a matter of fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did of heaven. And when he described it, he reached back 700 years into the past grabbed the last verse of the book of Isaiah and told people what hell was going to be like. It's going to be a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. It's going to be a place where people are eternally rebelling against God. Sometimes when we think about people in hell, we we imagine somehow that they're down there crying out for mercy and, and somehow God stubbornly said, nope, you had your chance and I'm not letting you out. That's not the description in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it describe people in hell of having any, any repentance and any resolve to escape. Men will still be refusing to acknowledge God as God. Women will still be in rebellion toward God thinking that they don't deserve to be there. They will think that they're still the center of the universe. They'll think that they're not guilty of rebellion. They will not accept forgiveness because they don't think they need forgiveness. Now listen, that's, a, that's an awful existence for eternity. But let me tell you something. If you are in Christ, if you have this hope of heaven... Your worst day on earth will be the closest thing you get to hell. But listen to me. If you are not 100% certain that you have a home in heaven, if you are not in Christ, if you refuse to repent of sin and place your faith in Christ, let me tell you, your 
best day on earth will be the closest thing you experience to heaven. Now, a lot of people think that kind of heaven is the default mode. We're kind of born in this world on our way to heaven. That's not true. Heaven is not our default destination unless we do something terribly wrong. That's what we think. It's like, I'm a pretty good person, and my family's pretty good people, and, and we, we're just, we, we want to go to heaven, so we're, we're going to heaven. If we, don't, if we don't really mess it up, I mean, I know some people that are not going to heaven. They've done terribly wrong things. These people deserve to go to hell. That, this is our default way of thinking. Can I tell you what the Word of God tells us? Hell is our default destination, unless we are made perfectly right. Because we are all sinners, because we've all rebelled against God, as described in verse 24, we all start out this life in verse 24. The question is, how do we get to verse 23, where we become worshipers of the Lord? And the answer to that question is, we can't do anything. If I ask you, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If your answer is anything other than Jesus died on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin, and I have repented of that sin, and I am placing all of my hope for heaven in what Christ has done rather than what I can do. If that's not your answer or something similar to it, there's something wrong with your soul. You're still in your default destination, and you need to be made right by the grace and the mercy of God and receive Christ by faith. It's the only hope we have of heaven. I would take you back to the first verse that we read. It simply says this, I was ready. God says, I'm ready. I'm ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I'm ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, open arms. The door is open to heaven. The question is, are you not going to seek him? Are you not going to ask him for grace? Or are you going to continue to believe that because you were born in a Christian nation, you were born in a Christian family, and you've got some knowledge of Christian truth, that somehow you qualify for heaven? It's not true. We're desperately in need of a Savior. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. There are so many people that come to Gospel City Church and they enjoy the environment, they enjoy the worship service, they tolerate the preaching, and um, they enjoy the friendships and fellowship. But listen to me salvation is not something you absorb over weeks months, years, and decades of going to church, reading your Bible, being around Christian friends. Salvation is something that is received by faith in a moment in time whereby you 
humble yourself, acknowledge your brokenness, you tremble at God's word, and you come as a broken sinner to receive grace. And there's a point in time that that happens for every individual. You don't do it as a group, you don't do it as a family. Everybody needs their own faith. And everybody needs their own moment of conversion. Just like you have a physical birthday. Jesus looked at a very religious man named Nicodemus one day and said, you need a spiritual birthday. It happens on a day, it happens in a moment. You don't have to know the day and the hour, but there is a moment in time when God takes you off the road to hell and puts you on the road to heaven. And God says, here I am, I'm ready. The question is, are you ready to get off the road to hell and on the road to heaven? If you've never done that today, right here, right now, can be that moment. You say, what do I do? You just cry out to God. Say, God, I'm on my way to hell. And I deserve it. I've been religious, but I've never been made righteous. I'm trusting Christ. I believe that Christ died on that cross in my place as a substitute for my sin. I've known some things about Christ, but today I believe, I wrap my life around that truth. I repent, turn from my sin, change me, and help me never to be ashamed of you. In that moment, did you just pray that? Many of you probably opened your heart up and prayed that. Listen, if you did, then in that moment, you have a new destination. Not because you're good, but because Christ is good and he's gracious. In just a moment, we're gonna sing about heaven. And after we sing, we're gonna conclude the service. Right up here at the front, there's gonna be some pastors and friends. And if you just prayed to receive Christ, I wanna encourage you to do a really scary thing. Instead of just running out of here real quick, would you come to one of these pastors or friends and just say, today, I received Christ and I have a hope of heaven. We wanna give you some next steps. We wanna connect with you. We wanna help you in now living for heaven. We want to schedule your baptism. Which would be your way of announcing, I am off the road to hell. I'm on the way to heaven. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the warnings. Thank you for the joys. We are glad in the hope that we have of heaven. That you would come to meet people that are so undeserving of your grace that we would still be talking 2,700 years after these things were written about promises that you've made, your faithfulness to, to redeem a remnant people in the midst of a culture that denies you and rebels against you. There's still a few that wrap our eyes, our minds around the hope of heaven. Renew 
restore, revive that hope in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.